All right, so my question is how we got Star Trek VI in the first place after Star Trek V. Like, how did they greenlight this? Somebody made it. I I know somebody made this, but I'm shocked that they were able to... So what was going on in Star Trek, the franchise, at this point? Well, okay, so so The Undiscovered Country is is an interesting movie for a couple of reasons. Number one, as you said, it's interesting because it was actually made. Yeah, again, after five... Star Trek V was was a disaster. I think it made very little money. I don't even think it was released uh, widely outside of the United States. Mm. And, you know, it was one of those things where I think paramount it's it's interesting because you know the the final frontier was made concurrent with the second season of next gen and the vo- uh, not the voyage home the the undiscovered country was made uh between i believe the fourth and fifth or third and fourth seasons okay. the hiatus of, of the next gen so i think paramount sort of had a vested interest in sending off the crew in a better way and I think they realized that a lot of the problems with the Final Frontier were more to do with, you know, William Shatner's direction and the story and, and all of those things than and also the writer strike, let's not forget, yes, which also yes. took place in nineteen eighty eight and, and also messed up the last half of the second season of Next Gen. Um and we talk a lot about next gen now with these movies because it, it it does have some bearing on it, and especially in this one. Well, at this point, if you say uh, you know I'm going to watch Star Trek tonight, it's next gen. That's what's going to be on. So, and at <laughs> this point, especially between third and fourth season, next gen is a hugely popular show, right? Yeah, it yeah. Is. And I think I think the thing about about the undiscovered country is that you know. I don't know that it would have gotten made if they hadn't convinced Nicholas Meyer to come back. I think that was a large portion of it. I think they kind of knew that they had to go in a different direction. They had kind of come to the end of what they could do with having either Leonard Nimoy or William Shatner direct these movies, right? Because if you look at it from the point of view of Paramount, you had Wrath of Khan, which is directed by Nicholas Meyer, which was a huge success. Search for Spock and Voyage Home, which were both directed by Nimoy, and were, were successes. And then William Shatner just kind of totally imploded the franchise and almost killed the movie franchise uh, with The Final Frontier. But I think they wanted to send off the crew with one final adventure that was really great. And getting Nicholas Meyer back, you know, I, I think that really helped it. And I think that's a large portion of why. It also doesn't hurt that. They wanted to ride on the coattails of Next Generation at this yeah. point because that was legitimately uh, getting a lot of great press and you know getting great ratings and also just the fact that you know one of the one of the things about Star Trek in general moving forward and next week when we move into Next Generation we can start talking about it but is that they really were able to leverage a lot of the people that were making the show. And also the sets. So a lot of the sets in, in, in yeah. The Undiscovered Country are just redresses of sets from Next Gen, which in turn were redresses of sets from, like, the motion picture. Okay. So it's kind of, like, all of a part, I think. They had a giant warehouse, and they were just grabbing stuff from that. Okay. Yeah. Um, and also, I know Next Gen Klingons... I know that Klingons are a much bigger part of Next Generation than they were in the original series. So this is... Almost a how did we get to having Klingons in the Federation type of story. Yeah, and I don't I don't think that you would have gotten the story of the undiscovered country if the next generation had not been on the air. Because 
if you look at how Klingons were portrayed in in the previous movies in the franchise, they were very similar to how they were portrayed in in the original series. Yeah. And yes, they got a little more fleshed out. You know, they had a language, they had some some you know government the, and things like that. Physically, but, their design changed to what we know of a Klingon. Yeah, yeah. But but by this point, you know, the, the next generation, you know, had, had again been on the air for three or four years, had a lot of uh, Klingon plots. Klingons were a huge part of the next generation in general. You know, Worf, right? I mean, that's yeah. a big thing. And so I think that there was a need to, number one, send the original series crew off on a high note, which this movie is. Oh, yeah. And also bridge the gap a little bit between the original series and Next Gen. And I think the way they chose to do that is really interesting by, you know, using the... And I think, you know, it's interesting because a lot of this movie is right time, right place. You know, Nicholas Meyer was was obviously influenced by the collapse of the Soviet Union yeah. with this movie, this and we was can get the into year that. The Berlin Wall fell. Yeah, so uh, you know, and they obviously would not have known about that while making the movie, but but still, politically, this was the kind of story. Actually, no, I'm were... sorry, Berlin Wall was eighty nine. So 89. right, so that that was that definitely went into it. Um, you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union went into this movie, and I think you know using that as a uh, uh, allegory for uh, explaining how exactly the Klingons got to where they were in Next Gen. It's nice, and yeah. it just all kind of fits together as a piece. You can under- you can accept that there is going to be a massive cultural change. So even if you have, and the movie is about that. The movie is about people who find themselves in the midst of a cultural change and yet have legitimate reasons for feeling the way that they do. In a way, in other words, this movie. Culturally, the Federation needs to accept Klingons. Klingons need to accept the Federation. That needs to happen. Um, that's where I mean, I would say. I mean, I would say I would disagree with that a little bit because I think that the Klingons need peace with the Federation much more than the Federation needs peace with the Klingons. And you know, the Federation obviously is a a peacekeeping and, and exploration, and, and 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 they're not interested in in warmongering, right? And that, that's that's something that's been consistent throughout Star Trek so far. Yeah, that I would say that it's mainly while it's not a nis- well, you know, the Klingons are going to die in fifty years if they don't have the Federation assistance. All the Feder what the Federation will get out of this is making peace with one of their enemies, but. That's a big, big value for the Federation. So, in other words, I wouldn't say that they have less to get from that. They are accomplishing one of their long-term goals with this. No, absolutely. And I, I think it's a little problematic, especially in the earlier beats, because, you know, you, you do get a sense of... It, it, it's it's hard to explain without knowing, you know, a lot of what comes after yeah. And I, a lot of what I say about the undiscovered country is is obviously colored by knowing the franchise so well, and, and you don't really have any of that background. Yeah, exactly. But, I don't know exactly how well by the time of next gen the Klingons are integrated into the Federation. Yeah, and and we can definitely you know get into that I'm later sh- on. Yeah. But w- one of the things I think about this movie that that is so um, a little bit problematic is just kind of the beginning of it, where you know really really for no reason I think Kirk has a huge problem with the Klingons and you know I, I understand where it comes from and I understand that they color yeah. that through the death of, of David his son you know being killed by um, Christopher Lloyd's character in Star Trek 3 and you know I totally get that I, I it kind of needed to happen for, for the plot to move forward but it doesn't ring that true to me because Kirk ne- is not one to really make these kind of things 
personal. And yes, I totally get that he would dislike the Klingon who killed his son. I don't know that I necessarily buy the idea that he's part of some sort of old Vanguard generation that just can't accept peace with the Klingons. Well, here's the thing. I Character-wise, yes. But there's... There is a weird postmodernness, a very 1991-ness to this movie in which I would say it's certainly a Star Trek movie and yet it doesn't have a problem with changing aspects of things in order to make a bigger point. For example, I mean the most obvious is how you have Klingons quoting Shakespeare and, you know, Spock saying, you know, Nixon going to China, like, those are, those are weird anachronisms or cultural, uh, uh, they, they, they don't, that's not real, that's unrealistic, that it's, in a way, a little joke about the contrast, and yet, I would say that's just as consistent as having Kirk being a Klingon hater. You have, it's using Star Trek to tell a story about our world in a little more of an explicit way than it normally may do, but... Given the time that this movie was made, I would say, I don't know, it it, it, it kind of worked for me. No, I no, it definitely does work, and I, I don't have a problem with any of that on a sort of on on, on a on a, a quality level, right? I yeah, mean, it, again, it, and it, it's it's if one of those. It depends on how you kind of have to take part of this movie as non-canon. I I don't think I would go that far. I don't. What what, what do you mean by that? <sighs> Like, like how in the second movie, it's a lot more Starfleet is a lot more uh, naval than it, we've normally seen it, um, and you can make it in your universe. Well, that's Spock's ship. That's he would you know hire more to protocol, or it could just say that's some a part of the design and the blocking that Meyer is using to give a certain feel to it. I mean, in other I guess... words, it doesn't necessarily matter. There is no answer for at, is Star Trek really a naval organization or not. It's just at one point it's being portrayed as a naval organization to give a feel. At other times, one that doesn't really go with the feel. Uh, in in the third movie, it doesn't have a naval feel because that doesn't go with the theme of the movie. So that part is kind of I mean, taken I would, out. I, w- I would say that, you know, Nicholas Meyer's two contributions uh, to the franchise, notwithstanding, and he does have a very interesting conception of yeah. star trek i think and yes he is very interested in that sort of naval flavor he he brings a lot of that back in this movie he's also interested in a level of verisimilitude where you know things like there are wooden picture frames in kirk's yeah. quarters and he has a fire extinguisher on his wall and there are warning labels everywhere and you know they put the um controls for the transporter behind the glass and you know sort of some sort of x-ray thing where it's all it's very dangerous you know and we never really see that in in, in any of the later series or in the original series yeah. that's not true um but I would argue that, you know, whatever Nicholas Meyer does to Star Trek, you know, the 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 sort of look and feel of the original series is different from the look and feel of The Next Generation, which is yeah. different from the look and feel of Deep Space Nine, and which is different from the look and feel of Enterprise, and is different from the look and feel of the Abrams movies. And, and I would even I, go you know, so I don't far have as a problem say... with, like, I don't have a problem with that, because it all sorts of, it, it, it's, it's not, just Star Trek is, is, is not one thing. That's what I'm saying. And... Like, you can, I mean, even Wrath of Khan to this movie, they have very different looks and feels to them, I would say. And... Star Trek can be it, – it can shift in order to fit the story that it's telling. This is a very different-looking movie than uh, than Wrath of Khan was uh, because they are – the villains are completely different in those. The stories are completely different. And it's all, it also just has to do with, you know, Wrath of Khan was made nine years before. And, Certainly. Um, 
this movie is is supposed to take place you know 10 years after wrath of khan i mean things change and 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 you know one of the things i like again about the meyer movies especially is that they do give a sense of you know the federation is is a living breathing organism it's a society they 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 grow and change and you know I think a perfect example of that of that is right at the beginning of the movie when we're introduced to Captain Sulu. And, you know, that that's just a very explicit, yes, everybody is sort of moving on at this point. Yeah. And I like that. I What I like about the movie is, I don't know, the pacing I found very interesting um, because it starts off as a very slow movie in a lot of ways. And I would even say it's a very weary-seeming movie. Like... Kirk especially is just tired. Like, he's doing a mission he doesn't believe in and doesn't want to do and didn't volunteer for, and he's a little pissed at Spock for, you know, volunteering him for this. The dinner scene, everyone's just having a bad time. Like, the entire movie, it's a scene of this is probably his last major thing he's doing, and it sucks, and it's one which almost invalidates his career. In a I, lot of ways. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because one of the themes of, of the movies in general has been Kirk's destiny as a starship captain above all else. And, you know, his crew's willingness to go with him. Um, you know, you see that in Star Trek 3 when they're helping to steal the Enterprise. And you see that in mm-hmm. Star Trek 2 and you see that in Star Trek 4. Uh, and, and Final Frontier doesn't exist, so we won't talk about that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and, and the thing is, I think that's interesting about this movie is... It jumps forward. I think this movie is supposed to take place, uh, you know, approximately three years after um, Final Frontier. Yeah. And so ostensibly they sent the Enterprise out on another on another five year mission or three year mission or whatever after the events of the voyage yeah, it home. Like doing and so three-year missions now. Cause well, Sulu, I mean, I, you know, Sulu, but yeah, they, after they, after the Final Frontier uh, or I mean, after Voyage Home, you could you could just assume that they went out on another five year mission, and Final Frontier was you know yeah. at year three or something, or year two of the fi- of their five year mission. Yeah. So it they've doesn't one hundred percent matter. So they've anyway. gone out you know two or three times at this point, and they're all older. Yeah. Th- this movie takes place ten or fifteen years after the events of the motion picture, and Kirk and crew were not ready to retire. They were not ready to go out to pasture a- at this point, but now they are. And yeah. This is really the movie that, you know, and some of that is influenced by real world events because, of course, this was an explicit yes. This is going to be the last mm-hmm. original series crew movie. They're all getting old. I mean, you know, they're all 60 years old at this yeah. point. Um, Age wise, in any military organization, these are characters who would be doing, you know, ready for retirement. I mean, they're even, we're, their mission appears to be this cataloging gaseous anomalies. They're doing a very light. Well, that has to do with the Excelsior. That's but, not but the they, Enterprise. No, they because ha- at the end they have the stuff for it in their. Uh, yeah, I guess, but ship. I mean, you know, whatever. The implication is that the implication is that they're not going on many adventures. They're probably doing a lot more routine stuff. Um, yeah, maybe I don't know. I mean, and 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 you know, but it it just kind of goes along with the idea that yeah. you know th- this is the crew that is retiring, and we are going to make a movie about that. And I think it works. Let me ask another question. Especially, and you've also said that the by the time of Next Generation, uh, space is kind of explored in a lot of ways. And so it's less, you know, less frontiery in a lot of ways. Uh, are we dealing with that here in this? Because I would assume if we're making peace with the Klingons, there again, the Federation is on the brink of peace with one of its biggest enemies. So that's going to make the galaxy safer just in that way. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, 
canonly it's something like four percent of the galaxy is explored in the era of tos e. and 19 percent is explored okay. in the era of tng okay does it really matter i don't know either way i mean you you get, i think there is know, a sense of things being more settled well and... what i what i like about it and i think we're, we'll talk about this a lot when we get to next generation but what i like about this movie specifically is again it does bridge that gap yeah. and you know if you look at the original series as an outgrowth of 60s optimism and the hippies latched onto it and and, and people like that yes it w- it was a more vibrant time it was a younger time yeah. and that was really the united states coming to terms with a lot of serious sociological problems it had and were they all fixed no but at least they were grappling with them in in kind of the same way that you know this was the maturation of of the Federation. And now you're looking at this, okay, it's 25 years later, it's 1991. You know, the, the, the United, if you look at where the United States and the world was in 1991, Hmm. it's a much safer world because of the collapse of the Soviet union. The cold war is over. And that feeds into a lot of what star Trek is in this time period and becomes. Yeah. I would say that the, series i mean well obviously the cold war started before star trek aired the running times of both are similar enough that it only does make sense to retire star trek at the same time that that changes um because there is a new and that's i think one of the reasons that they the theme is obsolescence because the values that you know if kirk is the values of the 60s if the federation is the values of the 60s um it's again 20 30 years later and the world has changed so much that how do we deal how do we how do we express those values are those values even relevant today um have they been replaced or can they evolve in another way yeah and yeah. especially a couple of years after you know communism fell not that long before after the, before this movie was made you know the wall, two years for the berlin wall to fall was nothing so you have a world which doesn't really know where it's going to go next necessarily. And I think the ending where they don't necessarily – the ending, they kind of stop worrying about the future, I would say. And they just kind of are ready for it. They 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 they, they have done their part and I don't know. It, it, it ends in an, a very different optimistic way than, you know, 60s Star Trek would end. Well, let's talk specifically about some of the some of the Soviet Klingon stuff in this movie because it's a it's really really a big part of it. Um, even stuff like there's a gulag they go to, you know. I mean, it's like very very influenced by this stuff, and, and it's also which is particularly hilarious that Kirk makes a Nazi reference to uh, you know one of the Klingons at, at when they say you know we need some breathing room. Well, that I mean that's a that's a great scene and. That whole dinner scene, yeah. It's 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 interesting because I think, you know, this movie really speaks to where people were in 1991. Because, yes, there was a ton of optimism mm-hmm. at this time period. You know, you had, the like you said, the collapse of the Berlin Wall in 1989 or 1990. You had, you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, you know, Eastern Europe opening up for the first time. Basically, the Iron Curtain coming down. You know, and it was very like, what's going to happen, right? The Cold War is over. We can, we're we're not, we don't have this threat of nuclear holocaust hanging over our heads anymore. And in a similar way, the explosion of of Praxis at the beginning of the movie 
is is the impetus for the Soviet economy collapsing. And yeah. and by Soviets, of course, I, I mean Klingons, right? Because they do make a point of saying that the the Klingon economy cannot absorb the the cost of fixing their home world or evacuating the entire home world which yeah, and completely makes sense n- beyond even evacuating they may even be able to, they have nowhere to go at this point either like they they a, a full planet's worth of people you, you know the immigration paperwork on that alone is going to be insane you know that's part of the reason i think they want to join just to quickly get out of there and I think it also I think it also speaks to the futility of arms race, right? Yeah. Because w- one of the things which was really interesting about the original series was that it did postulate that you know obviously the Klingons are are, are taking the Russian role in, in the original series, yeah. and the Federation is is not really taking the American side so much as it's taking the side of progress and and, and freedom and um, you know consensus and coming to some sort of like peaceful solution to problems. And Amer- what Amer- the Federation is what America thinks. Of itself maybe yeah that that's probably an accurate assessment and it turns out that in 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 both cases perhaps the the federation slash american way is 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 more correct or at least works better and more feasible more sustainable i mean they explicitly say that it's klingons that the klingons had low safety procedures and that was the reason that yeah well it's all it's all those things right so they have low safety procedures so the, the moon exploded and you know, I mean, the, yeah, the, I picture the, a I picture a gray Soviet factory with you know workers and like a fat guy with a whip like this. You know, you you have to imagine we see some working conditions in Klingon, uh, you know, in, in on the planet of uh, on the, in the lithium mines. We assume that the moon yeah, had, R- Pente, yeah, yeah, I assume that there would be uh, it would it would be that and a power station was what the moon looked like. Well, well, that's interesting though, because like you know, if you look at the Klingon economy and you look at the way that the the Soviet economy worked, you know, they're 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 not dissimilar. I mean, they're not completely yeah. similar, but yes, the 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 Soviet economy was propped up for 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 decades, you know, by by you know military spending, and they were really only able to become a world power because they spent so much money on keeping up with america and it was sort of this you know the arms race was was more about propping up the soviet economy we found out much later than it was about any sort of existential threat that they felt from from the west yeah and i think in a similar way i think this movie kind of it 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 retcons the klingons a little bit but not in a bad way because i think this movie is the first movie where we really get an indication of klingons as people oh yeah and you know gal uh uh, galron uh (laughs) He's he's a character in Next Generation. Um, Gorkon is a big part of that. Chang is a big part of that. His daughter is a huge yeah. part of that. Even the and, incidental Klingon characters, you know, they right. have little line. They they're all differently characterized, and they have personalities. And where I, what I think that's interesting is, and the movies in general have done this very well, especially with the Vulcans. It's that a lot of times when you have an alien race, they have in especially in genre sci-fi tv they have their their gimmick and that's their personality and all klingons are just bloodthirsty warriors and all romulans are duty 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 violence you know and like all vulcans are logic 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 and this one shows how you can have klingons being a bloodthirsty warrior race and still all have very different personalities because again gorkhan chang and his daughter are completely different she is closer to her father by virtue of being 
you know, his kid, but she is also has her differences. She's a lot less trusting of, than he, her father was. She's a lot more, I would say, calculating than he is, you know, things like that. I don't know. I, I think that's very well done because it makes the Klingons, yeah, they feel like are a culture. You can have culture where that's not a gimmick. You can have a cultural tendency that's not a gimmick. No matter how, <clears throat> you, you, you don't get the sense that for the daughter, for Gorkon, that either of them feel that this compromise makes them any less of a warrior for that. Right. And, you know, one of the one of the theories I've always heard about Klingons is that, you know, well, well, how could such a bloodthirsty warrior race that's basically the Mongols have an interstellar civilization? What what sense does that make? And, you know, I I remember reading something once where where someone came up with a theory about like, well, you know, um, it's not all about killing people and, and, and battle and war. It's also like, you know, Klingon doctors would be fighting wars against disease <laughs> and, you know, Klingon scientists would be fighting wars against whatever. And, well, they you would know, be and very so ambitious like, and competitive, certainly. Yeah. And, and so I think that makes a lot of sense for it. Um, and they're also, I, I like the, I mean, we, we're going to have to talk about Shakespeare either way. I don't know if now is the moment to talk about it. Uh, the use of Shakespeare is fascinating in this movie. Uh, and again, this is another thing that Nicholas Meyer is obsessed yeah. with. He wanted to call Wrath of Khan Undiscovered Country. Yeah. It's funny that it works here. Number one, having Christopher Plummer screaming out Shakespearean lines like he can pull it off. You know, it's dramatic looking as shit. And again, it's almost an impressionistic version of Star Trek in some ways. You can have... There's enough cultural borrowing going on everywhere in this movie. Spock, you know, says Nixon goes to China's a Vulcan phrase. He even claims Sherlock Holmes is an ancestor of his. Like, there is... Yeah, and I mean, that's interesting because, you know, Spock has sort of come into his own again. And, you know, after the voyage home in Final Frontier, where he's sort of wandering around in a daze almost. Yeah. He's he's Spock again in this movie. Yeah, it took him a little... Spock, an older Spock, a wiser Spock, even. Um, and that's and that's one of the things that struck me the most about when I watched this movie again is we never really got to see the maturation process of Spock. And I, I wish... That's like the one thing that I wish we would have seen mm. more of. Because if you look at the way he is in the original series, he's a much younger Spock. Yes. And now he's an older Spock. He's a more adult Spock. And I think, you know, we haven't talked about... Um, Valeris yet, but we'll we'll get into that, of course. And he has an interesting relationship with younger Vulcans, and he's sort of seen as a as a wise older yeah. figure. He's not super old in Vulcan terms, but he's old enough. And he, I mean, he's. Not, I wanted to see yeah. how he got there, and that's one of the things we never get to see is is how he got there. Yeah, I think it's interesting how he's been kind of aloof in a lot of the movies, as in he's been doing stuff that people aren't necessarily aware of when he appears in this, you know, and he's giving this briefing and he's signed, you know, Kirk up for this thing. Kirk has no idea. This is supposed to be his best friend. And I don't know. I think there is something. I do like the idea of Spock as having these adventures that he doesn't really talk about. I mean, you get the sense almost that he's been doing a lot of very, like, I would be surprised if Spock weren't doing some black ops stuff at this point. That really seems like where he's at in, you know, in his career. And that would... I will only say this. Wink, wink. <laughs> Do 
do we oh do we find out maybe maybe not oh boy um but that scene where he's talking to Valeris and he says you know logic is important logic is the beginning of wisdom uh and that is not something Spock would have said in, yeah in the original series but he died he relearned stuff and again this is all going back to at the end of voyage home he learns how to guess i mean that that's the you know he ha- he has logic is the beginning of wisdom he thinks it's the end of it guessing getting him out of the situation is him realizing no there is something else that's him stepping out of the cave really so yeah you know I would I would say it's probably boring to watch a lot of ha- Spock's maturation because it probably happened through a lot of meditation and soul searching and reading of philosophy, you know. But yeah, this is a Sp- hey. It's it's possible that he went to Vegas and had a great time. I mean, we don't know. Uh, yeah, but that would be on shore leave. Ah, yeah. Um, yeah. Either way, this is this is a Spock who has learned. And by the way, how great would Spock be at gambling? Like poker, he, he'd he be at poker and there'd be no way you could ever beat him. Yeah. I mean, he would just be counting cards like crazy and he he has the best poker face ever. Yeah. And he would uh, mind meld everything and he's psychic, remember? <laughs> well, I mean, this is a natural part to talk about Valeris, who is now I was doing some reading and they originally wanted to make her Savic. And that Yeah, that is correct. See, I have to say it. I think it would have worked better if it had been her because, uh, number one, there was an element where while I loved the way the mystery was done, I thought it was a very interesting plot. The plot in general, I wasn't sure where it would go next for a lot of it. I did, it was very, you know, the, the beginning of the movie, I was genuinely, it is genuinely left ambiguous. Is this legit on the Klingon's part or not? The way that they send their distress call late. I thought that one of the twists would be that they blew up their own moon or that, you know, this was all staged for something, you know, that, that the movie leaves that open. And it's to the movie's credit that the most important parts of the movie are just straight up accurate. And, you know, it, it, it isn't a movie about sort of the machinations of the Klingons as much as, as it is about the uncomfortableness of previous generations with change. Oh yeah. And, I think Valeris is an interesting example of that because, you know, she if if she had been Savic, I agree with you. I think it would have worked a little better just because Spock and the rest of them had some history with well, her. Well, there's a few other th- reasons. Number one, you kind of figured it was the one new character who was behind everything. You know, I, I wasn't surprised when I found out who the two assassins were because they had a very particular, the camera lingered on them for a second too long, you know, so if you're going to do a twist, uh, you know, Valeris is the only person who, so it would have been more effective for it to be Savic, like, you know, oh my, you know, oh my God, it's Savic, somebody we've had, you know, two, three films seeing. Yeah. Uh, Number two, she has just as much of a reason as Kirk to hate the Klingons because she was there when David was killed. She had been working with him and undoubtedly got extremely close to him so you know it's not you know yeah that's kirk's son but she does still have a personal reason to despise the klingons the scene in with her and with valeris and spock at the beginning where they're drinking from the uh you know that cup and that you know he's saying you know i'm you're, you're gonna be my six you're gonna replace me and I'm, i loved that scene that was a very I want to say almost erotic scene between them. It's certainly a very intimate moment. Um, that's one that was earned a little more 
between Spock and Valeris because, number one, they pawned Fard together in the previous movie, but they have also been, you know, student and mentor for years, and they do have that very deep relationship, and there would have been, that scene would have been more of a consummation of that. Yeah. He has been, you know, it makes sense that he would want Savick to be his successor because, you know, we've seen her several times. She has come through for him in the same way. This character doesn't have that. I guess on those levels, Savick makes a lot, it, it, it's, it would have been a much more emotionally resonant choice. And so, in a lot of ways, I did some mental replacing. Yeah, I don't disagree with any of that. And I, I, you know, I think Valeris is an interesting character as far as she goes. They they do a good job of of, of giving us a sense of who she is and what her personality is like and what her beliefs are in the short time that we see her. And I kind of wish that... it's, It's funny because Kim Cattrall, who played Valeris had auditioned for the part of Savick, you know, back in 1981 or 1982 and, and didn't get it, obviously. Um, turns out that their choice of Kirstie Alley was perhaps not the best because she's <laughs> kind of insane. But, and you know... she didn't stick around for any of the other appearances. Well, you know, she... Kirstie Alley is, is, is kind of an interesting person because she has a much greater sense of herself as an actress than I think a lot of other people do. And she is a legitimately good actress, but... She is not sort of an A-list that can command high salaries, and you know she was on she was the replacement uh, uh, on Cheers. I mean, it's not like she was a no no in high in demand you know movie star. Um, you know, she did look who's talking for God's sake. I mean, this is not someone who was making uh, you know no, no. profound movies about the human condition, and. So in that sense, I feel like Kim Cattrall, I like her performance as Valeris. I think she's great as an interesting Vulcan character that's a little different from what we've seen before because yeah. she's not Savick and she's not Spock. You know, she's she's less emotional than Savick, but she's kind of less or maybe more emotional than Spock. And so I like that. And I wish the kind of that Kim Cattrall had gotten the role of Savick back in 1982 because I think she would have obviously you know maybe her career would have been different if she had gotten the role I don't know but yeah she wouldn't have done mannequin (laughs) probably um but you know I think I I have a sense of of her that she probably would have come back to play Savick in Star Trek 3 and she would have come back for Star Trek 6 so I think that that would have been a nice way to, to sort of put an end stone on that character as it is Savick does get short shrift and we never really talk about her again and okay. you know for good reason because you know the the actress they got to replace her she wasn't was kind of there she wasn't great and uh, you know one of the things I was reading in preparation for, for recording this is that you know uh, they they never asked her Robin I think her name was Robin Curtis or Robin Curry and that sounds familiar they just didn't even bother to ask her. And I, I can see why, because if she had been in this movie, I think it would have been a lesser movie and it would not have had a lot of those emotional resonances just because yeah. I don't think she's as good an actress to create a character out of whole cloth like Kim Cattrall did with Valeris. And I like that we see a, we haven't seen a very deceitful and manipulative Vulcan in a while, not since Spock's wife in the Pond Far episode. Um, we, because a lot of it, what you know, again, I kind of figured if there's a traitor, it's going to be the new character. But the way that she, I actually want to watch the movie again to see some of her 
because she's helping in the investigation the entire time. When Spock's telling her that, you know, you're going to be my replacement, she's already got the plan ready to, you know, she just needs to say the word and the plan is going to go. Um, you know, I, I keep thinking about that scene when she tells the uh, men who are revealed to be the assassins, like, oh, don't you two have some work to do? Like, she's talking about assassination work. She's wanting them to be preparing for killing the imba- killing the can- chancellor. You know, that that... I think it would be interesting to see those scenes again, knowing the kind of twist in a way to see. Yeah, well, that's that's what I was about to say. I mean, I've seen this movie before, obviously, and 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 it is it is interesting because Nicholas Meyer does do a great job of setting up scenes that when you watch the movie again, yeah. they have additional payoffs because, of course, the scene where she's standing outside of Kirk's quarters, yeah, that takes on new resonance after they find out that she is the the traitor and that evidence was used against him in his trial. You know, the the scene in the transporter room where number one, yes, there is the element of she's saying something to them that we think is very different than yeah, what she's actually she's saying just thinking to them. She's, she's a lieutenant who's seeing guys slacking, you know? But, but also, why is she there in the first place and why is she loitering? She's obviously doing something nefarious. Yeah, the scene where, I, you know, thinking back on the scene where she goes to Kirk's thing, Kirk's quarters, um, she doesn't really do anything in there. She doesn't really say anything important to there and... Like, I had the half, like, that's a weird scene, like, because there's no point, like, you know, but it, you know, what seems like an initial throwaway line or something like that does end up becoming, again, a major plot point. Yeah. What what do you what do you think of the the plot line in general though? Because I think you know we've talked a lot about sort of the the, the Soviet parallels and we've talked about the Klingons and we've talked about how it you know has sort of transcended and, and and bridged the gap between the two eras. And obviously this is this is the more movie ish part of of the film where you do need some sort of plot to hang yeah. this on and you know an intrigue murder plot is as good as any. I mean it's um, a spy story in a lot of ways which makes yeah. complete sense for Russian, you know, that that this is a James Bond movie in some way. Yeah, and it's it's well constructed I think and you know sort of the motivations of the characters make yeah. sense. Um you have Admiral Cartwright who obviously was very strongly in favor of letting the Klingons die. Well, that's the thing. At the you, beginning of the movie. You have what I like about it is that while while the conspiracy is definitely beyond the pale as far as morality goes, it's done for kind of the right reason as far as these people believe. Because they have seen Klingons being violent and warlike, and they, they kind of pro- – Admiral Cartwright is probably one of the more militant Federation members, but probably he and his guys have seen more fighting with Klingons. Okay. We don't, we don't know what he's seen. But – and I think you're forgetting something very important yes. about this. And and this is why I don't think that makes a lot of sense. Okay. The conspiracy only works if the Federation conspirators work with General Chang to pull it off. And so to me, it strikes me as extremely ironic that, you know, Admiral Cartwright and Valeris and the other Federation conspirators who, <laughs> who were working to, to, to torpedo the, the Klingon Federation peace talks are relying on developing a strong working relationship with the Klingons, who they say the Federation can't work with. So to me, it kind of undercuts the entire motivation for them to be doing this. Now, yeah, but I mean, they're, 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 there's, I, a, there's, I think a, there's a line in the movie even to this effect. Uh, does, doesn't Valera say at one point, like, you know, uh, 
you know, we y- you can't trust a Klingon. I mean, they have guys in their own, you know, on their own race who betrayed them. But you know, again, they have to trust General Chang to pull this off. They're trusting a Klingon because they say they can't trust the Klingons. Yeah, it's, it's a problem. You, you, you don't think spies in real life work that way? You don't think there were people who, you know, got... Nazis to turn and still hated Nazis. I mean, that's kind of what I, I that's, thought. That's, I thought that was a. I kind of figured it was that way. They were getting that's a couple different, of though. I think that's different because if you're a spy who's turning a Nazi, you're using some sort of leverage. You don't you don't turn people just because they decide that they want to help you. You turn them because you have some sort of serious blackmail on them. All mm-hmm. it's going to do is create a war and. I guess General, I guess they think that they can get one over on General Chang, who is now Chancellor Chang, and they're going to be able to defeat him. All right. Well, but I mean, we've seen enough characters, especially in the animated series, who want to bring about war. True. But I, I mean, you know, something, it was honestly, I didn't think about it until you're mentioning it now. This is kind of the thing where you may have noticed this because you've seen the movie a few times. Seeing it for the first time. It does. I didn't even think to probe it to deep enough to the level of motivation because I don't know. It's one of those things that you can kind of accept in order for the plot to work, and I was able to in this. No, it, I'm not. It I'm, not, yeah, I'm saying, not saying it doesn't work for the film. I'm just saying it, it doesn't work in general. No, no. You and again, it's one of those. I have no idea because this is the movie did a good job of distracting it from that. Th- this seems like a third watch thing that comes up i don't know what you mean by that you, you, you know in other words i didn't some movies a lack of a character motivation is a major problem you can say oh i don't know why that character did that in the movie but it doesn't really the since the conspiracy is almost a macguffin in this in a way uh since the you know it needs there needs to be a conspiracy in order for the plot to move and i can assume that they just or, you know, I, I didn't, you don't need, the movie doesn't necessarily need to be probed that deeply. I guess, I guess to me though, the, the conspiracy, you could, I don't know how you would have written it, but I'm not a, I'm not a professional well, screenwriter. Like, yes, that's you a- could have written this to, to have no, you know, input from the Klingons. And so General Chang is, is really happy that this happened because obviously yeah he gets control but and and the thing is too he he doesn't get control because you know Gorkon's daughter is elected chancellor so and it's they're like still having and then at this peace conference they're going to be shooting her it, it yeah uh, yeah it, just, it, you know maybe there's there's a, I think there's, Chang is patient enough that he will have a couple of people killed until he has power. Do you know what I mean? Like I I don't. I think- guess well, a lot. I mean, we're talking about this a lot, but I guess the only thing I will say, and then we can move on to something else, is I don't think that this is the strongest written part of the movie. Yeah, but uh, yeah, and then my part is I I didn't notice that it wasn't the strongest written part at, at when I saw it. You may not notice that until a couple watches through because it is such a. I, anytime you begin to question that, like, then they're in Rurapenthe and that section is awesome. Or then, you know, they're working on the mystery plot and you're thinking of something else. Yeah, and that all is great. The The thing I think I, I, I appreciate the most about the movie is that it really does, you know, especially after the debacle of, of The Final Frontier, 
you know, and, and, and specifically with the conspiracy and the, the peace talks with the Klingons and the Federation, you know, Kirk is set up as someone who obviously has great reservations about this. And there's all this talk about, well, you know, um, Gorkons, I think says something about history is going to have to, you know, we're going to, history is going to have to get past people like us and, you know, all of these things. And yeah, that's all true. And Nazis and, and Soviets and blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, but what I like about it is Kirk, when his prejudices and when his problems with change hit up against morality, the right thing to do and mercy, he doesn't stop. I mean, he, you know, as soon as he's like, what the hell? We just fired at the Klingons and they, he immediately goes into action and says, I'm going to go beam over there and see what we can do. We didn't do this. Um, yeah, the only way in good faith they Kirk, can start to back up is by surrendering. Kirk surrenders. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a he, he doesn't do that, and so uh, it's it's I like it because I think it also just as the Federation and the Klingon relationship is maturing in this movie, I think this is Kirk's final, maybe his 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 most mature action in the movie where he realizes that this isn't a time for machinations. This isn't a time for, you know, different sort of like yeah. plots that he could figure out. And how does he get out of this? But no, he just needs to suck it up. This is for the good of the Federation, the Klingons and the galaxy in, at large and goes over there and of course gets arrested. But well, let me put it he this, makes a sacrifice in a way. The fact that Kirk is never approached for the conspiracy alone is very significant, I would say, because you would think that's true. You would think that Valeris would say, you know, her captain, who she ha- she everything that she's doing is behind Kirk's back. Kirk is a very big Klingon hater. If Kirk could be turned into the conspiracy, that would be probably her. He would be one of the first people that they would go to. She would immediately want him on her side because that would take so much heat off of her. That would make her job so much easier. I mean, hell, they could just poison all of the Klingon food and, you know, immediately and take care of the problem themselves. Um, The fact that Kirk, even though Kirk doesn't at all believe in this, the fact that Kirk goes for it. Yeah. And does it, even though he has at times disobeyed orders and when he has felt morally against them. I think the presence of Spock and Spock's urging of this particular mission is very significant in that way. And I think that speaks to the difference between Kirk and Spock's relationship versus Valeris and Spock's Well, I think there's I think there's a couple things there. Number one is that I'm not sure how much or how little Kirk actually believes or doesn't believe in this. I think that he has a lot of prejudices, but I think that in general, Kirk is probably the archetypal starship Federation Starfleet captain who believes in the mission of, of the Federation and Starfleet believes in the power of, you know, straight talk and, um, and, and peace and letting people do their own thing. And so we've never really had much indication from him as a character that, that, he has a problem with that. I the guess other when thing I say I think, not believing in it, I mean even just on a level of distaste, as in he asking them to dinner is the protocol thing to do, and it's something that good manners dictate, and he is he and the rest of the crew are so turned off by this idea that they have to get drunk in right. order to... They have to get not drunk, shit-faced, in order to just handle being with them, and they make fun of them immediately afterwards the entire time. So... 
I guess it's a whether he believes in the mission or not. Like this is something that he's repulsed by. Well, even though he, it's, he, it's something he does need to suck up for the greater good. He really does not want to do this. No, he doesn't want to do it. But I think there's a couple things there. Number one, I disagree with your characterization that as soon as the Klingons leave, they're making fun of them. I, I don't. I don't think they're doing that. I think it's more. These are people that. They've never had to deal with Klingons on any sort of level other than I'm in my ship and you're in your ship yeah. and we have to figure out how we're not going to kill each other. Um, and I think it, it just they're, they don't know how to react around them and they're just uncomfortable around them. I think it's like they're, they're on their best behavior and these are not people that want to be on their best behavior all the time. Um, yeah, I guess less and making the other, fun. I just think of the like when Yahur is saying, like, did you see the way they were eating? And, you know, they're then they're talking about their table manners. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. That, I, but I think I think the larger point here is that, you know, I think we're both forgetting that Kirk may not want this to happen or Kirk may be uncomfortable yeah. with this. But Spock obviously thinks it's a good idea. And Spock yeah. believes that he is making the correct choice in 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 helping the the Klingon Federation peace talks go forward and just as Kirk has a lot of influence on Spock Spock has a lot yeah. of influence on Kirk and oh, they're friends and so i think Kirk while he doesn't agree with Spock's yeah. belief that this is going to work he goes you know what Spock saying this Spock would not do these things in if he did not Again, anytime Spock's dis- Spock disobeys an order, um, it's always been for a good reason. While Kirk is a little upset that he, you know, Spock volunteered him for this mission, he's never done that before, and he would not do it if it were, yeah. you know. And let's let's take the conspiracy aside for the moment. If, you know, they did not exist, the mission would, they would have this awkward dinner. The next night, they would have an awkward dinner on the Klingon ship. Then they would be on Earth. The peace negotiations would go, and you know, then refugee start process would start, um, which is what ultimately happens after all of this craziness. So yeah, Spock was the right one in the end. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, in, in sort of the final analysis here, wh- what I like the most about the movie is that it it really is about the the peace process working, and it is about. I mean, you know. It's it's interesting to look at this movie, you know, over 20 years later because of course things are not going well in Russia right now and whatever we thought about the future of the world in in the 1990s that's not the future that we ultimately got. And I mean, even compare economically the U.S. in the 90s to now, you know, maybe we're not as bad as Russia, but things have gotten a lot worse. Too. Things have gotten a lot worse. You know, Russia is definitely turning towards the autocratic. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a sense in the 90s that you know, this, this was going to be the era of peace and prosperity. And then, of course, 9-11 happened. And, mm. you know, we have a lot of terrible things going on right now. And so it's it's it's. It's nice that the movie allows the Federation and the Klingons to develop this relationship. And it's nice that the franchise in general allows that to go forward, even though things did not actually happen like that. Yeah. There were a couple of moments just quick that I thought were fascinating in the way that they make it clear that, you know, even though an agreement may be reached, uh, the terms of that agreement may be a little difficult. Like at the very at the dinner, um, what 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 does he say? Like the uh, that 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 the, the the daughter, and I wish I knew her name. You know, 
is saying like that's racist the terms you're using what what is the quote that he says oh right because i think Chekhov says something about oh well we believe in inalienable human yes. rights and, and just like alien and human rights like yo you know your term i know what you're trying to say but your terms are and then towards the end um when he's talking to spock and he says you know you know he says something about you know hum- common humanity and uh you know spock says you know that's you know, I, I'm not human, and you know, Kirk goes, "No, everybody's human." Like, it's a weird, and Spock gets a little offended at that. Um, I think it's really interesting because what we had, especially at '91, was the concept of this melting pot, where you would have a, you know, where cultures could all exist in a uniform kind of mash. Multiculturalism, you're yeah. talking about? Yeah. Well, no, multiculturalism and melting pot are two different things. Well, I would, I would melting, say, I, I, melting I, pot suggests that all cultures come together and ultimately become one culture, or in more, uh, you know, actual terms, everybody is the melting pot. Is everyone becomes American? Everyone becomes human. Multiculturalism suggests that you have a federation, you have an organization which has. Vulcans and humans and, you know, Klingons and all, rather than a human organization that lets in Klingons. I think that's that's one of the things that the movie brings up but not does not necessarily go into and I don't think it's inappropriate that it does not go fully into this but well I think I think that's I think that's interesting for a couple of reasons number one because I think it speaks to the general distrust on both sides the Klingons have a view of the Federation that is decidedly not complementary to the Federation and you know they even go so far as to call it a homo sapiens only club yeah you know present company excluded while pointing at Spock and you know the other interesting thing there is um, I don't know how incorrect they are in well, some respects. We've had that. But... That theme has been brought up several times by other. Again, the episode where Spock is with the Romulan captain. She is saying, you know, you know you, a Vulcan would never get a captaincy, you know. And while that may not be true at this point in the Federation times, certainly in that around the time of that episode, there were no alien starship captains. And I think, you know, I think a lot of that is to do with just the, I mean, you know, I don't know how far you can really go with that because there's just, there's, there's so much of that that is wrapped up in sort of real world production issues, right? And, but, but, but I think they're making an, they're, they're taking, I, I would say that's a thing that takes a the fact the fact that most of the people that we see in Starfleet are human has more to do with the fact that yeah it's, it's expensive to put people in makeup than anything else. But at and, the same time, the other alien species do treat that as a canon bit of Federation culture. They well, even think, if there are mo- they it it is decidedly a fact that at this time in the Federation, more most vastly more starship captains are human. Even though we see different aliens on crews, we see mostly humans, and the aliens notice this. The question is whether the Federation is a group of different races coming together or a group run by humans that aliens are allowed into. And I think one of a lot of the and I think that's what that that's what the theme of the movie ultimately is, is what is going to happen to the Klingons. Right. Like and that's even explicitly said at the dinner scene where they're talking about their culture and their race. And, you know, they, they have their own beliefs and they have their own values and they want to keep them. And if anything else, I will say that, you know, it 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 
seems okay to me because we see the Vulcans and the Vulcans have their own vibrant culture. And they are obviously not um, subordinate to Earth in any way. And Mm. I don't think it's incidental either that, you know, you haven't mentioned this, but the Federation president in this movie is an alien. Yeah. And but but we're seeing what I'm saying you know, is we are seeing these are all I, I I ultimately do agree the Federation will ultimately be a coalition of different races and it is the Federation is good. From the Klingon perspective there have been so many problems with it that for the Klingons for another alien other alien races have legitimate reasons to not be 100% trustful of the Federation and while we may say no, they they are going to be able to Klingon culture will still be a thing. They are about to say we're going to join your thing. They are legitimately worried that they will be, if not destroyed by a lack of oxygen, that their culture will be just taken over. Well, I think there's a I think there's a, a fear there, not that they're going to join the Federation because obviously that that's not happening at this point. But but that they this is this is how the Federation works. It's insidious, and they like yeah. you know they they they're sort of making it so that. Uh, they have a peace process and they're working together and then the Klingons get more comfortable with that and they eventually join the Federation and they I just mean, become another member of the Federation as opposed to having their own empire. Again, and, real world talks of American hegemony yeah. le- le- legitimately and genuinely fear this sort of thing. So that's, I think, they're worried that you know the Klingons don't want to become Americans. They want to stay Klingon and they are not sure if they will be able to sign a treaty with them without and still keep their culture still keep their sovereignty still keep their government in the way that they want to and and you know we haven't talked about the romulans and all of this but you know i don't think the romulans have much of a real world analog in this situation but it's it's just intriguing to me that the Romulans are even in this movie at all. You know, there's that scene in the in the Federation president's office where the Romulan ambassador is there. Why is he there? What does he have to do with any of this? And he is an enemy of the Federation, and the Federation is an enemy of the Romulans. It seems very strange that he's there, and it's it's colored by the fact later on that I they don't they never make this explicit in the film, but he is part of the conspiracy and. I think what you can infer from that is the Romulans were maybe the, you know, we've always talked, I mean, the Romulans sort of get short shrift in, in Star Trek in general for, for a race that has been in it as long as the Klingons and they, they, you know, but, but, and they're, they're not really in much of the movies for, for any reason. Um, and what I find interesting about that is the one thing that we do know about the Romulans is that they're very uh, uh, calculating and they, they yeah. definitely like that sort of, you know, intrigue sort of thing. And it makes sense that I think the Romulans would join with the conspirators only because I think they would be uncomfortable as well with the Federation and the Klingons coming to terms with some sort of peace because that would then make them less likely to take advantage of the problems and, and sort of the opportunities involved in, you know, getting involved in all of these different little wars. See, you know, that it actually, that actually may mitigate the, how did the Klingons and the Federation end up working together on the conspiracy? Because if you, you know, obviously this Klingon, this Romulan ambassador knows everybody. Um, 
he, you know, he and his or a Romulan could go and, you know, number one to the Federation people and say, look, I don't like you. I don't like me. But General Cartwright, we don't we both don't like the Klingons, you know. Let's make something happen, you know. Yeah. And he would be more easily able to talk to General and Chang and be, "How do you feel about this whole thing?" Well, look, yeah, because let's not let's not forget there is that throwaway line in one of the um, original series episodes where they say that the Klingons are now using ships of Romulan design, yeah. or was it the other way around? But anyway, and so there is a, that that kind of put in in the canon that the Romulans and the Klingons maybe they didn't have an alliance, but they were more friendly with each other than they were with the Federation, certainly. Again, Again, you know, th- this movie makes it clear that, you know, there are not so much races as individuals within a race. And so we can assume particularly devious Romulans, particularly open-minded Klingons, particularly conspiratorial Federation members and, you know, people talk to people. This is not an official government conspiracy in any way. This is something that a group of people, yeah. a group of extremists felt, and that tends to oddly enough, blur national lines at times. Um, I, so, yeah, maybe, again, the Romulans were the third party through which the rest of the negotiations happened. Yeah, yeah. Well... Where does this leave us with our friends? You know, this is a really good way of ending it. You know, they're about to decommission the ship, and they take one last cruise around. And... You know, they may or may not have another adventure before they go home, but they're just going to, I don't know, you get the sense they're going to enjoy just being on the ship together one last time. and Except for Sulu. Well, fuck Sulu. Well, that's not nice. Why would you say that about Sulu? Because he's cute. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, you know, and I like it, and I think it's it's a little bittersweet. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, it, it's very similar, I think, to the end of Star Trek. Two, and I think it's also similar to the end of Star Trek Four in some ways, but it's different because those movies were a lot more optimistic than this one. And this is explicitly the last voyage for these people. This is the last movie that we're going to ever see this crew yeah. in, and they're all going to go their separate ways, and, and they're actually going to do it this time. And so, well, it's as you said earlier. You know, they weren't ready this time. They are ready. And yeah, like I mean, Uhura's going to go teach in Starfleet Academy, and and Kirk is going to retire, and and Spock is still going to have a long career, but perhaps he's going to leave Starfleet. We don't know. Scotty will probably be. You know, Scotty bought his boat. Yeah, you know, occasionally he'll be called in for particularly crazy, you know, engineering tasks. Or and let's not. He'll... I mean, let's not forget. Let's go as far back as as the motion picture where um mccoy had left starfleet and was drafted back into it so i think he's ready to retire and go his own way again perhaps he's going to go into private practice who knows but he's just going to get his georgia house and just an endless mint julep machine yeah so i think it's i think it's an appropriate send-off for these characters and it's 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 a nice way to leave them i think it's it's true to all of them in a way that if if the final frontier had been the last original series movie, I think that that would have been a, a, a real oh, shame. God. And it's just a nice way to end it. I think you know if you look at the whole entirety of original series, animated series, the six movies, the the original series did what it did, and it it, it created these characters that you know I certainly love, and I think you've come to appreciate at least. Yeah. And you know the animated series sort of allowed a different interpretation for that and then the movie sort of enriched the characters enriched the world in a way and 
you know, made it a more of an explicit aging sort of thing. But I think it all works well. And yeah. I think it's a good place to leave them. What I think is interesting is that in the fifth movie, they meet God. And yet this movie, which is about a political treaty, feels so much more epic and so much more climactic and so much i mean it's really making it clear what a bad movie the previous one yeah. was because again in terms of you know scope you know to, again to go to from religion to politics is a step down certainly but i don't know if it is well though, in terms of think, going from metaphysics to day to day i think you know i think if if one thing is true about star trek so far it's really that you make your own destiny and yeah What I like about this movie is at the end of the day, the Federation and the Klingons are going to sign the peace treaty. They're going to, and we know this for a fact because this is on in the air. This, this was made at the same time that the next generation was on the air. And, and, and we know exactly what happened 75 years later. And it's nice that Kirk and crew were the crew that were instrumental in pushing the Federation forward into a new era of peace. Yeah. It, it it gets them from just a bunch of people who had some really cool adventures to somebody, a, a bunch of people who literally closed that chapter of history. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's nice. And I think it's a nice way to leave this episode. And it gets um, 10 lines of rhyming iambic pentameter. Okay. Uh, I'll give it an eight. Really? Yeah. So next week, we are starting our long... Our five-year mission. <laughs> strange trip into the 24th century with the pilot episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, Encounter at Farpoint. Now, let me just really quick, what uh, to, to give some scheduling, how long are we planning on stint spending with The Next Generation? Uh, next Generation will take us approximately 17 years to get through. No, it's uh, about a year and a half, I think. Okay. So for the next, so listeners, the next year and a half is going to be next gen. Yes. Enjoy that. I know I will.